Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Just when I think I'll have nothing to talk about, something happens that makes me go, well, I guess I'll have too much to talk about, which is exactly what has happened today. We're going to start with some history from Gilder Lerman. The Gilder Lerman Institute of American History, APUS History Study Guide, in fact. The Great Depression of the 1930s was the nation's grimmest economic crisis since the founding of the American Republic. After the 1932 elections, Franklin D. Roosevelt introduced a series of innovative remedies, his New Deal. But the entire effort seemed threatened when the United States Supreme Court invalidated significant pieces of its legal foundation. Eventually, Roosevelt proposed his so-called court-packing bill to circumvent the court's unfavorable rulings. The events that followed qualify as one of the stranger chapters in the constitutional history of the United States. Roosevelt brought relentless energy and creativity to Washington following his election in 1932. The problems before him were unprecedented in depth and scope. Since the crash of the stock market three years earlier, 5,000 banks had failed, wiping out over 9 million accounts. At least 25% of the workforce, workforce was unemployed. National income was less than half of what it had been in 1929. In the first 100 days of the new administration, Roosevelt and his team of advisors attacked the crisis with a penalty of legislative measures, an emergency banking act, a series of employment relief acts, a bill to refinance defaulted mortgages, and laws shoring up agriculture and regulating Wall Street. New instrumentalities of government were conceived, among others, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the Public Works Administration, and the National Recovery Administration, thereby introducing the alphabet agencies that soon became a familiar feature of the New Deal. Despite the widespread popularity of these initiatives, Roosevelt faced oppositions from several quarters, including most of the nation's newspaper publishers, many businesses and financial interests, entrenched states' rights supporters, and advocates of small government. Since the Gilded Age of the 1890s, those forces had controlled America's economic establishment, and after a brief eclipse during the progressivism of the Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson administrations, they had assumed renewed primacy during the 1920s. Bolstering their position was a legal regime overseen by the U.S. Supreme Court. In a line of cases following the end of Reconstruction, the court had built a doctrinal superstructure conducive to modern laissez-faire industrialism and hostile to the claims of laborers and the indigent. By the way, I'm reading the article. These are not necessarily my opinions, but I think it's an interesting perspective. Legal concepts like substantive due process had exalted private property and freedom of contract. Imagine that. While limiting the power of government to regulate or otherwise interfere with entrepreneurship. Roosevelt anticipated difficulties with the Supreme Court when he took office. He had criticized it even before his election, election, noting during his presidential campaign that the court was in complete control of the Republican Party and thus an instrument of laissez-faire. The emergency measures of the new administration's first hundred days were developed without illusions about the court's ability to stymie them. 
And it goes on. It's a, it's a very interesting article. And one of the few that I have found, <laughs> it's interesting to read about what went on with the New, the new Deal uh, and Roosevelt and the court packing, depending on what... <laughs> What's what your political ideology is? This was either awesome stuff or really bad. It's amazing how some things never really change. But anyway, you can you can go and read this. This is one of the more fair pieces that I have found on this uh, on this issue. It's from the the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History. It's from their AP U.S. History. Uh, study guide, but essentially, so so Roosevelt comes into office during the first two years after his election. Uh, he basically he manages to steer clear of any direct confrontation with the Supreme Court. But then, in January of 1935, the court issued its ruling on the New Deal statue, or its first ruling rather on a New Deal statue, uh, and it struck it down. Now, despite there being not necessarily a massive majority. I think it was like five to four. I think it was five to four uh, conservative, liberal, or Republican, Democrat. But even though they're not supposed to be party related, I believe that was a measure. But the vote against uh, against the New Deal statute was an overwhelming eight to one decision. Wow. Then, that just that that decision kind of just created a snowball effect, where you saw the Supreme Court strike down uh, <laughs> many things. You go look up the Four Horsemen of the Supreme Court and FDR. Very very fascinating stuff. And uh, Roosevelt's team was just like plowing through with all this progressive legislation, and the Supreme Court kept knocking it down saying, this is not constitutional, this is not constitutional, this is not constitutional, this is not constitutional. And Roosevelt and his supporters were just like, ah! What are we going to do? <laughs> the Supreme Court won't let us do anything we want. Now, granted, this is a little more complicated than just that. If you look at the legislation that the, that the Supreme Court was striking down, it does seem that there was politics at play, at least in some of these instances. And I don't know that I would have judged in the way the Supreme Court judged, ju uh, judiciated at the time. So, so I'm not saying that this was right or wrong. I'm not going to get into the, the New Deal right now, although my personal opinion as a conservative is that a lot of it was awful and still is wreaking havoc in our country today. And on our economy, but that's another story for another time. I'm just looking at the, the Supreme Court issue right now. So anyway, so Roosevelt is pushing through all of this massively progressive stuff, right? The New Deal. And you may be like, I've heard that before, but not related to Roosevelt. So AOC, Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has been pushing the Green New Deal. So she's, she's patterning herself after this. But anyway, so Roosevelt, his supporters are just like, we have got to, they've got to stop. They can't, they, they've got to stop stopping us from doing what we want to do. And the Supreme Court kept saying, no, we're not going to let you do this because this is not constitutional. So Attorney General Homer Cummings uh, wrote to the president privately and said, I tell you, Mr. President, they mean to destroy us. We will have to find a way to get rid of the present membership of the Supreme Court. That's, <laughs> you know, not, uh, not exactly subtle. Um, but again, there was a, even uh, even Herbert Hoover, 
suggested that that a constitutional amendment was necessary to restore to states the power they thought they already had. Like, not all Republicans even agreed with some of the decisions the Supreme Court were making. So this isn't like it was a, a cut-and-dry thing. Some of what Roosevelt was doing uh, was good, and no doubt he really managed to turn things around uh, in some ways very well, in other ways very poorly. Um, but again, don't have time to get into the whole Roosevelt issue today. So... Uh, though amending the Constitution seemed logical, this was not something that the Roosevelt supporters wanted to do. Because it wasn't just like they had to find the right words and get a constitutional convention. No, no, no. There was, <laughs> there was this fear that states would be against uh, a broadening amendment about, about states' rights. The states were like, no, we, we like what's happening here. Uh, please don't touch anything. Then comes 1936, and uh, Roosevelt is overwhelmingly victorious. And a new plan is set in place. The most obvious alternative to a constitutional amendment that would affect the, the, the composition of the court or states' rights issues was to simply change the way the court was made up. So, the plan was, if we can just get the older justices to retire, then we can appoint friendlier replacements. We can appoint people who will think what we think and do what we want to, will not stand in the way of what we want to do. This is literally the whole reason. Like, it's not even hidden. This is historical fact that the reason FDR was trying to do this was because the Supreme Court was not letting him do what he wanted to do. Uh, but that's the Supreme Court's job, is to be a check and a balance. The Supreme Court is not the one... Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is what Roosevelt, this is what Roosevelt said. And by the way, Congress in the first Judiciary Act of 1789 set the number of Supreme Court seats at six. Thereafter, the number went from five in 1801 to seven in 1807 to nine in 1837 to ten in 1863, back to seven in 1866, finally again to nine in 1869, and it has stayed there ever since. In January of 1937, Attorney General Cummings uh, showed President Roosevelt uh, 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 what he thought could work. He said the justices, if they're in office and they reach the age of 70 and don't retire voluntarily, then we can appoint a new justice for every uh, justice who reaches the age of 70 and doesn't retire, capped at a maximum of six new justices, effectively increasing the court size to 15 judges. On February 5, 1937, Roosevelt sent this court-packing bill uh, to Congress in the form of proposed legislation to reform the judiciary. The statement he said along with this was, uh, <laughs> it held back nothing. He said, the question of age or infirm judges, a subject of delicacy, yet one which requires frank discussion. Uh, and he noted the decline in mental or physical visor, vigor leads men to avoid an examination of complicated and changed conditions. Older men, assuming that the scene is the same as it was in the past, cease to explore or inquire into the present or the future. So, the new proposed law was that when any federal judge not just on the Supreme Court, but any federal judge, with at least 10 years service, remained on the bench for more than six months after reaching the age of 70, the president could add a new judge to the court. The maximum was six new justices for the Supreme Court and 44 for the rest of the federal judiciary, or judicial system. 
So, so Roosevelt releases this plan. Uh, no. Public sentiment? No. Republicans in Congress? No. Democrats in Congress? Nope. So Roosevelt's court packing plan fails because everybody was like, yeah, we are not doing that. Everybody. Republicans, Democrats, public opinion, the press. It was a united... <laughs> people had united behind Roosevelt like never before in our history to get him uh, reelected. And then when he came out with this, people responded in pretty much the same fashion, uniting against his plan uh, across the board in a way that I think we possibly have not seen also uh, since. That said, his plan was not necessarily a failure. Though it never actually went to a vote, and so it was never actually voted down, the proposal had no momentum, was hugely unpopular, and practically speaking, was, was very soundly defeated. But, but, one of the justices who had previously been voting along with the conservatives suddenly had a change of heart and started voting for and in favor of Roosevelt's proposals. Shortly thereafter, one of the four horsemen of the court that had uh, had uh, uh, formerly opposed Roosevelt decided he was going to retire. And it became clear that Roosevelt would be able to appoint a new justice of his own choice without any need for Supreme Court packing, and he would still be able to do whatever he wanted to do. And that's largely how FDR was able to accomplish the things that he did. And some would say the timing was just coincidental, and perhaps it was, but it's very interesting that it wasn't until this became an issue with court packing that we saw one justice who had previously consistently opposed FDR suddenly switch over, but also another justice choose to retire. Do with that what you will, but that is where the whole court packing thought process began, was with FDR, who was trying to implement the New Deal, trying to change things, trying to progressive, 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 the Supreme Court saying not constitutional, not constitutional, not constitutional, and FDR, his attorney general, his administration saying, they won't let us do what we want, we will simply add people to the Supreme Court so that we can do what we want. Sound familiar? It should. And I believe that one of the reasons the Supreme Court has stayed at nine justices since 1869 is because it is deeply tied to its tradition of all of the federal government's three branches. I say all as if there are so many. <laughs> There's three. The Supreme Court bears the closest resemblance to its original form. If you look at the history of how we have done presidential elections and presidents and vice presidents serving together of different parties and how... I mean, uh, the history that we have with presidents, in which, by the way, FDR is the whole reason why you can only have <laughs> a two-term presidency as well. Like, that guy, I don't even... Okay. Um, 
and then Congress and the, the changing dynamic and makeup of what Congress has looked like as populations have fluctuated here, there, and everywhere, the Supreme Court has pretty much stayed the same. The Supreme Court on their website talks about the history of the Supreme Court and says that the Constitution elaborated neither the exact powers and prerogatives of the Supreme Court nor the organization of the judicial branch as a whole. So it was left to Congress and the justices of the court through their decisions to develop the federal judiciary in a body of federal law. The earliest sessions of the court were devoted to organizational proceedings. The first cases reached the Supreme Court during its second year, and the justices handed down their first opinion on August 3, 1791, in the case of West v. Barnes. Which, and by the way, uh, the, the, uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 divided the country into 13 judicial districts. Those were divided into three circuits, eastern, middle, and southern. And while the Supreme Court sat in the nation's capital, which was in New York at the time, it initially had a chief justice, five associate justices. Um, for the first 101 years of its existence, the, the, the Supreme Court justices were required to ride circuit and hold circuit court twice a year in each judicial district. Imagine that. The number of justices on the Supreme Court has changed, like I mentioned before, six times. It's been a total of nine since 1869. This, I think, is very, very interesting. Since the formation of the court in 1790, there have only been 17 chief justices. Only 17. That's kind of crazy. There have been 103 associate justices, and justices serve an average of 16 years. On average, a new justice joins the court almost every two years. President Washington appointed the six original justices and before the end of his term of his second term had appointed four other justices. During his long tenure, President Franklin D. Roosevelt came close to this record by appointing eight justices and elevating Justice Harlan Fisk Stone to be chief justice. So he had the most <laughs> even despite his whole court packing scheme, he still ended up having the most since George Washington of of appointments. So that's a little bit about the history of the court and court packing. And I know you might be saying, okay, okay, so I know I've been hearing about this. Why have I been hearing about this? Here's why you've been hearing about it. You'll know my opinion of court packing when the election is over. That's what Joe Biden said on the campaign trail in October of last year. You'll know my opinion of court packing when the election is over. I guess now we know what his opinion of court packing is because he has established a commission to study it, which, by the way, is comprised primarily of leftists and liberals. And uh, not only that, but Democrats have said that a commission is not enough. And today, they may have even done it already while I'm recording this, but uh, today, Thursday, Democrats are set to put their plan into Congress to add, I believe it is, uh, how many are they trying to add? I think four. Four new justices in order to give, yeah, which would give Democrats a majority. I mean, they're not even hiding it. Like, it's not even, it's not like, hey, we want to add two. No, it's like, if we add four, then we know we'll have the majority. It's literally, they're doing what FDR did. He was like, they won't let me do what I want to do, so we'll just change the court. That's not at all what our founders intended. (sighs) 
<sighs> Reason.com, free minds and free markets, wrote a, uh, an article back in October. Which said, judging from their grandstanding during Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing, Democrats think the composition of the Supreme Court is a big issue in next month's presidential election. Yet evidently it is not big enough for their candidate to tell voters whether he favors expanding the court to accommodate his policy preferences. You'll know my opinion of court packing when the election's over, Joe Biden told reporters last week. His unwillingness to discuss the issue should alarm anyone who values judicial independence as a bulwark against the abuse of power, regardless of which party happens to be wielding it. Biden himself explained the threat posed by court packing as a senator in 1983. It was a bonehead idea, he said, referring to Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1937 plan to make the Supreme Court more receptive to his New Deal agenda through legislation that would have authorized him to appoint up to six additional justices. That plan violated no law, Biden noted. Still, it was a terrible, terrible mistake to make, and it put in question for an entire decade the independence of the Supreme Court. Last year, Biden was still opposed to FDR-style bullying. He said, I'm not prepared to go on and try to pack the court because we'll live to rue the day. That's what he told the Iowa starting line. He was equally firm during a Democratic presidential debate. He said, I would not get into court packing. We begin to lose any credibility the court has at all. And in January of last year, Joe Biden told the New York Times he had no judicial reform plans. But Biden was silent in October, conspicuously refused to rule out court packing during his debate with President Donald Trump, and so did his running mate Kamala Harris during her debate with Vice President Mike Pence. It's not as if Democratic anger at Republicans' hardball tactics makes the lessons of FDR's failed bid to expand the court less salient. To expand the court, rather, less salient. Roosevelt's plan was never popular with voters, and it provoked intense opposition from Democrats who controlled the House and Senate as well as Republicans. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Hatton Sumners refused to back the president's bill, and Roosevelt's own vice president, John Nance Garner, was against it. The Senate Judiciary Committee issued an adverse report on FDR's plan that said it does not accomplish any of the objectives for which it was originally offered and violates all precedents in the history of our government. The committee called the bill a dangerous precedent that would undermine the independence of the courts, violate the spirit of the Constitution, subvert the rights of individuals, and weaken the protection our constitutional system gives to minorities. FDR eventually reshaped the Supreme Court in, his, in the usual way, filling eight vacant seats. But he paid a huge political cost by trying to jump the gun. When the dust settled, FDR had suffered a humiliating political defeat, noted historian Michael Parrish. The protracted legislative battle over the court packing bill blunted the momentum for additional reforms, divided the New Deal coalition, squandered the political advantage Roosevelt had gained in the 1936 elections, and gave fresh ammunition to those who accused him of dictatorship, tyranny, and fascism. Biden is candid about his reason for his reticence after, uh, of FDR. It's a great question, he said, and I don't blame you for asking it, but you know the moment I answer that question, the headline in every one of your papers will be about that instead of focusing on what's happening now. At this, the time this was written, of course, that was whether to replace Trump with Biden. But voters deserve to know whether Biden now thinks FDR's bonehead idea was pretty smart after all, which it would appear that he does. Interestingly, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer came out warning Democrats against packing the Supreme Court as a way to undo the current conservative majority. Breyer is the longest serving of three Democratic nominated justices. Uh, he went on, uh, oh, where did he do this? Um, webcast. 
He was doing a webcast lecture for Harvard, Harvard's law school on Thursday, and said that it could undermine the trust that the court has gradually built. What I'm trying to do is to make those whose instincts may favor important structural change or other similar institutional changes, such as forms of court packing, to think long and hard before they embody those changes in law. I hope and expect that the court will retain its authority, which was hard won, but that authority, like the rule of law, depends on trust. A trust that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. Structural alteration motivated by the perception of political influence can only feed that latter perception, further eroding that trust. So what he's saying here is, look, <laughs> it has taken us ever since FDR, essentially, to rebuild trust that the Supreme Court is not functioning as a political branch of the presidency, just uh, pushing through whatever the president's agenda is, or pushing through whatever is the party in power, or that it is being a representative of a political party itself. But if you go ahead and, as Democrats, add four seats, literally saying so that we can do what we want to do because the, the Supreme Court is not allowing us to do the things we want to do, you are clearly then trying to make the Supreme Court an arm of a political party. <sighs> Who's this guy? Uh, Representative Mondaire Jones, a Democrat from New York, tweeted that our democracy is under assault and the Supreme Court has been dealt the sharpest blows to restore power to the people. We must expand the court. How does that work exactly? But now we have liberal activist groups, including Take Back the Court, which are advocating for increasing the number of justices. They are supposed to uh, join the announcement on the steps of the Supreme Court today. Um... And Markey, another one of the bill sponsors, uh, I think this is, uh, I think it was Markey. Yeah, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, uh, co-sponsor of this bill, told the Wall Street Journal that adding, adding justices would shore up the public's confidence in the court and its legitimacy in the public's eyes. How on earth do they think this is going to happen? I mean, if you thought people went into fits about the election because of what happened on the overnight uh with the ballots and different things and that was done you know and when we okay i'm not gonna get into the whole the whole election again but if you think people were mistrusting of our government and don't find a presidency legitimate because of how the election was handled the thought that packing the supreme court will shore up the public's confidence and its legitimacy in the eyes of the public is about as far off as you can get. And you clearly do not have any understanding of history. In fact, current polling data shows that the majority of Americans oppose this idea. Tom Cotton said that packing the Supreme Court would destroy the Supreme Court. The Democrats will do anything for power. Uh, Mark Meadows said the moderate left is gone. This is who we are now. Open borders, outlawing, vo outlawing voter ID, free health care for illegal migrants, and now court packing. This should be roundly rejected and he's right by the way and so is uh, Justice Stephen Breyer which by the way now you have <laughs> now you have opposing Breyer who would normally be very supportive of him the Democratic group Demand Justice, which, by the way, is led by Obama's Justice Department spokesman Brian Fallon, uh, had a 
vehicle billboard driving around the Supreme Court earlier this week that says, Briar, retire. It also said it's time for a black woman Supreme Court justice. There's no time to waste. And by the way, President Biden has committed to naming an African-American woman to the Supreme Court when a vacancy opens. I mean, I, not that there's anything wrong with that, but why? why is it that now we have a... a skin color requirement for various hirings. I thought that was what we were trying to get away from. I thought it was supposed to be about your character. I thought it was about to be uh, supposed to be about your actual skill and c- accomplishments. Like if if you are a Native American and you have a better judicial record than this white guy, then you get it. If you're a white guy and you have a better judicial record than the Native American, then white guy should get it. Like, it shouldn't... I don't understand why it is that we are all somehow now okay with this whole... The person I'm going to pick must fit, must look like this, or else they need not apply. Somehow that just doesn't seem like the way we want to go. And I feel like it's something we've been trying to get away from for, you know, 100 or so years. But so it is. (sighs) Jonathan Turley wrote over in The Hill. Biden and others seem to think the Supreme Court must be canceled for its failure to yield to the demands of our age of rage. This is, did Joe Biden impact the Supreme Court Commission to simply fail, is the name of the article, or title of the article. Uh, Many of us were surprised when he pandered to court packing calls in the 2020 primaries. Some of us have called for expanding the court over a lengthy transitional period, but commentators and some Democrats called for an immediate infusion of new justices to give liberals the controlling majority. Unhappy with conservative rulings, Democrats demanded that the Supreme Court be replaced by a much larger and much more reliably liberal body. (sighs) Washington already looks like many of our campuses where opposition of such liberal measures results in isolation and condemnation. Take Justice Stephen Breyer. One would think he would be immune from the mob as one of the most consistently liberal justices in our history. However, this week, Breyer warned against any move to expand the Supreme Court and was swiftly denounced by figures like cable news host Mitty Hassan, who called him naive and for his retirement. Demand justice, a liberal group calling for court packing, had a billboard truck in Washington the next day telling Breyer to retire. Demand justice, by the way, once employed White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki as a communications consultant, and Psaki was on the advisory board of one of its voting projects. The commission is an ominous sign that Biden may be offering up the last institution immune from our impulsive politics. Its composition also seems to confirm the worst expectations. Indeed, it is a lesson in how to pack a body. The group is technically bipartisan, but is far from balanced. Only a handful of the 36 members are considered center-right academics, which is actually a strong showing on many of the represented schools, which have few, if any, conservative or libertarian faculty. Liberals make up the vast majority on the commission, and some have been outspoken critics of Republicans and the conservative Supreme Court majority. The commission rapporteur, who is tasked with publishing the final report after 180 days of study about the Supreme Court, is University of Michigan professor Kate Andreas, one of 500 academics who called for the rejection of Brett Kavanaugh. 
one commission chair, Yale University professor and former Demo- or Justice Department official Christina Rodriguez, had also signed the public letter against Kavanaugh. The other commission chair is New York University professor and past White House counsel Bob Bauer. The commission includes such individuals as Harvard University professor Lawrence Tribe, who called Donald Trump a terrorist and has a history of personal and vulgar attacks on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and others who maintain views that he opposes. Tribe once ridiculed former Attorney General William Barr for his Catholic faith. The only ire Tribe has drawn from the left, however, was when he referred to the possible selection of an African-American like then-Senator Kamala Harris to be vice president as mere cosmetics for the party. Tribe has not been subtle about his sudden interest in court packing. After the election, he declared the time is overdue for a seriously considered plan of action for those of us who believe McConnell and Republicans abetted by and, uh, uh, and abetting the Trump movement have prioritized expansion of their own power over the safeguarding of our American democracy and the protection of the most vulnerable who are among us. Another Harvard University professor put it in more direct terms. Michael Klarman declared the refusal of Senate Republicans to confirm Merrick Garland as a justice in 2016 was itself court packing. He said Democrats are not initiating this spiral, they are simply responding in kind. He added that Democrats should not worry about Republicans responding with their own court packing when they return to power. Instead, Klarman insisted Democrats could change the system with a manufactured liberal majority to ensure the Republicans will never win another election. Now again, guys, this is not something this is not something that is like conspiracy or that you have to go looking on InfoWars or some other conspiracy website or go dig through Q to find this stuff out. No, no, no. This is stuff they're saying right up front. They there is nothing they're not hiding anything right now. Back to the article. The only hope is that this commission is so lopsided that it is clearly not intended to be a credible basis for a court packing proposal. While the group has many respected and thoughtful academics, its composition is unlikely to sway many conservatives or even some moderates. Rather, it could be an effort to defuse the left while sentencing the court-packing scheme to death by commission, a favorite lethal practice in Washington. Commissions to study events or new ideas often become a vast political wasteland where bad scandals or notions are sent to perish. Hence, why we now have Democrats in Congress just putting forward a bill. Because, as this article notes, this commission could now be a switch-in-time moment for Biden. The hope is that he does not have the courage to simply repeat his past view that court packing remains a bonehead idea, but that he can assemble an overwhelmingly liberal commission to effectively kill the scheme. After all, 180 days is not much time to reinvent the Supreme Court, but it is just enough time to give the pretense of an effort to do so. Unfortunately, that is the closest we get to principled government today. But in this instance, the short lifespan just may be a hitch in time that saves nine. So that's Jonathan Turley writing over at the Hill. Interesting theory. And I actually tend to agree with him. I would not be surprised if that was Biden's intent. If I, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but if our president even has a comprehension of what is happening in his administration, I don't know that he does because he seems to be suffering uh, some cognitive failure. That said, I think that the, the, uh, that Democrats have come forward with a bill already would suggest that Turley's theory is correct. That Democrats saw what Biden is doing, far-left Democrats in Congress, and said, we are not going to let you let this die. We are not going to let you look like you're doing something about this. We are going to put forward our bill. We are going to make this happen, and there's going to have to be an up or down vote, and then you are going to have to sign it or not sign it. What will be interesting to see is if this becomes an albatross for President Biden now that Democrats have bypassed his commission and just gone straight to the, uh, the legislative process. That'll be very fascinating. Because for FDR, this moment 
was a very bad, bad moment for him and his presidency. Remain to be seen whether Biden will now suffer because Congress was not willing to see what would happen with his uh, uh, with his commission. All right, we've now gone roughly 15 minutes longer than I was anticipating with this short history of the Supreme Court and court packing. But I just wanted to give you some information that maybe you don't have, that maybe you haven't heard, that maybe you've heard bits and pieces of, but you haven't been able to piece it all together like a puzzle. So I want to wrap things up. If you, I've, I've said it before, but there is just such good information available, um, historical truth at wallbuilders.com. And uh, there are a lot of people, it's really amazing if you Google, a lot of people that are really hateful um, and that really, really don't like wall builders. The problem is, if you know anything about wall builders or you actually study any of their materials, you realize that they are getting their information directly from the original sources. I mean, their, their collection of original documents and publications is unparalleled, except for perhaps the Library of Congress. And they're going to the source, and they're saying, this is what our founders said. This is what our founders taught. This is what our founders lived. And I do not know of any organization that is more in tune with our founding fathers and more accurately representing them from their source material, not from what people have said about them, but from them themselves than wall builders. So you can go to wall builders. You can find out all kinds of stuff about the Supreme Court. But I want to print out, wrap things up with five judicial myths today. Wall builders put out this piece. Piece. Uh, you can find it on their website. Five judicial myths about the judiciary. Despite what we hear today, number one, the judiciary is not a co-equal branch of government. Okay? Congress determines the operation of the judiciary, not vice versa. Uh, Will, William Giles, a member of the first federal Congress under the Constitution, says, or said, it is that the judiciary department formed by the Constitution. It is not. It is only declared that there shall be such a department, and it is directed to be formed by the other two departments who owe responsibility to the people. The number of judges, the assignation of duties, the fixing of compensations, the fixing of times when, and the places where the court shall exercise the functions, etc., are left to the entire discretion of Congress. The spirit as well as the words of the Constitution are completely satisfied, provided one Supreme Court be established. Congress may postpone the sessions of the court for eight or ten years and establish others to whom they could transfer all the powers of the existing courts. Uh, Representative Stephen King correctly explained constitutionally Congress can reduce the Supreme Court to nothing more than Chief Justice Roberts sitting at a card table with a candle, a power that the judiciary cannot reciprocate, reciprocate over the Congress. So Congress controls the Supreme Court and how it is set up. So they can make changes to the number of justices there are. because it. And why can they do this? The very fact that they can suggest to make these kind of changes is because the judiciary is not co-equal. The judiciary is meant to serve as a check and balance as one of the three branches of our government. Number two, the judiciary is not to be an independent branch of government. John Dickinson, a signer of the Constitution, said, What innumerable acts of injustice may be committed, and how fatally may the principles of liberty be sapped by a succession of judges utterly independent of the people. Thomas Jefferson said it should be remembered as an axiom of eternal truth in politics that whatever power in any government is independent is absolute also, in theory only at first while the spirit of the people is up, but in practice as fast as that relaxes. Independence can be trusted nowhere but with the people in mass. 
Nathaniel Chipman, officer of the Revolution, early member of Congress, U.S. federal judge, chief justice of Vermont Supreme Court, said, if the judges are made independent, they will become a dangerous body. Jonathan Mason, a law student who was trained by John Adams and an early member of Congress, said the independence of the judiciary so much desired will, if tolerated, soon become something like supremacy. They will indeed form the main pillar of this godly fabric. They will soon become the only remaining pillar, and they will presently be so strong as to crush and absorb the others in their solid mass. Hmm. So number one, the judiciary is not a co-equal branch of government, according to our founding fathers. Number two, the judiciary is not to be an independent branch of government, according to our founding fathers. Number three, the judiciary is not the sole branch capable of determining constitutionality. James Madison wrote, The great objection is that the legislature itself has no right to expound the Constitution, that wherever its meaning is doubtful, you must leave it to take its course until the judiciary is called upon to declare its meaning. I beg to know upon what principle it can be counted that any one department draws from the Constitution greater powers than another in marking out the limits. Eldridge Gary, signer of the Declaration, framer of the Bill of Rights, wrote, it was, quite a foreign, it was quite foreign from the nature of the judiciary's office to make them judges of the policy of public measures. Luther Martin, framer of the Constitution, Attorney General of Maryland, said, a knowledge of mankind and of legislative affairs cannot be presumed to belong in a higher degree to the judges than to the legislature. John Randolph of Roanoke said, If you pass the law, the judges are to put their veto upon it by declaring it unconstitutional. Here is a new power of a dangerous and uncontrollable nature contended for, the power which has the right of passing without appeal on the validity of laws in your sovereign. Thomas Jefferson said, Our Constitution has given, according to this opinion, to one of the three branches alone the right to prescribe rules for the government of the others, and to that one, too, which is unelected by an independent of the nation. The Constitution on this hypothesis is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, which they then twist and shape into any form they please. Rufus King, signer of the Constitution, framer of the Bill of Rights, said that judges must interpret the laws. They ought not be legislators. Thomas Jefferson said the opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and what not, not only for themselves in their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and executive also in their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. James Madison said refusing or not refusing to execute a law to stamp it with its final character makes the judiciary department paramount, in fact, to the legislature, which was never intended and can never be proper. Thomas Jefferson also said, You seem to consider judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges are as honest as other men, and not more so. They have with others the same passions for party, for power, and the privilege of their core, and their power the more dangerous, as they are in office for life and not responsible as the other functionaries are to the elective. President Andrew Jackson said each public officer who takes an oath to support the Constitution swears that he will not support it as he understands it and not as it is understood by others. The authority of the Supreme Court must not, therefore, be permitted to control the Congress or the, uh, or the executive. President Abraham Lincoln. I do not forget the position assumed by some that constitutional questions are to be decided by the Supreme Court. At the same time, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Wow. Judiciary 
not the sole branch capable of determining constitutionality. So, one, judiciary, not a co-equal branch of government. Number two, judiciary is not to be an independent branch of government. Number three, uh, or, or, or like self-functioning or superior. Number three, the judiciary is not the sole branch capable of determining constitutionality. Number four, federal judges do not hold lifetime appointments. The Constitution says that judges hold their office only during when they are of good behavior. Federal judges may be removed from Congress for misbehavior, which not only includes criminal behavior, but also other misbehaviors. Historically, federal judges have been removed from the bench by Congress for contradicting an order of Congress, for profanity, for rude treatment of a witness in a courtroom, for drunkenness, which, by the way, see uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but we won't go there, for judicial high-handedness and a variety of other reasons. And, by the way, uh, I mean no disrespect to the deceased uh, justice. However, uh, her, her sleeping during a State of the Union previously would have gotten a justice removed from the bench when she said she was not totally sober. The Constitution provides six clauses on impeachment, the most often mentioned subject in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been many examples of this happening with the Supreme Court. So it's not the the Supreme Court is not a lifetime appointment. The Supreme Court is an appointment while a, a individual serving on the court is exercising good behavior, and they can be removed by impeachment from or by the by the Congress. And lastly, number five, the purpose of the Supreme Court is not to protect the minority from the majority, and Congress is a better protector of minority rights than is the judiciary. George Washington said, the fundamental principle of our Constitution requires that the will of the majority shall prevail. Thomas Jefferson said, the will of the majority is the natural law of every society and is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. Perhaps even this may sometimes err, but its errors are honest, solitary, and short-lived. The primary purpose of the Bill of Rights, in addition to the Supreme Court, is not to protect the minority from the majority. The purpose of the Bill of Rights is to protect every citizen, regardless of if they are in the minority or the majority, from the intrusion upon their rights by government. And Congress is a better guardian of all the people, majority or minority, than are the courts. Federalist number 51 says the members of the legislative department are numerous. They are distributed and dwell among the people at large. Their connections of blood, of friendship, and of acquaintance embrace a great proportion of the most influential part of the society. They are more immediately the confidential guardians, confidential guardians of their rights and liberties. And by the way, in 1875, Congress banned all segregation. In 1882, the Supreme Court struck down that law. So which would be a better representation of the people? which would be a better representation of a protection of the minority. While the court is often praised today for ending segregation in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, what the court actually did in that case was only to reverse its own position that had kept segregation alive 70 years longer than Congress's original ban. Thomas Jefferson said when the legislative or executive functionaries act unconstitutionally, they are responsible to the people in their elective capacity. The exemption of the judges from that is quite dangerous enough. I know no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society but the people themselves. And if we think the people, not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. This is the true corrective of abuses of constitutional power. So there you go. 
Lots of stuff about the Supreme Court. We talked about the history of FDR and his original court packing plan, how, why it failed, and the court of public opinion, as well as just in general. We talked about uh, Biden previously uh, being opposed to court packing, saying that what FDR attempted to do was a bonehead idea. But he also said during the election that we would find out his stance on court packing after the election which apparently we now have because he has set up a commission to determine whether or not uh, we want to change the dynamic and the frame of the Supreme Court, which, by the way, is not this commission's responsibility to do. It would be Congress's responsibility to do. In theory, uh, people believe that perhaps he has set up this commission in attempts to uh, kind of temper that, uh, that, that desire from some on the left to to do something about the Supreme Court and Congress, uh, far left leftists are not uh, not not biting, and they have decided to go ahead and move forward with a bill to pack the court, regardless of what Biden's commission says. And then we wrap things up with five uh, talking points about the judiciary and some judicial myths as debunked by our founding fathers and what they said. So hopefully that was helpful to you. Hopefully you have a little bit of a better understanding of of where we came from, how this happened originally, uh, what people are comparing it to, what Biden is trying to do, what Congress is doing, and what it is that the Supreme Court... uh, some of the, the myths surrounding the Supreme Court anyway. So... Lots of Supreme Court stuff today. I know we kind of jumped all around. Apologize for that, but hopefully it was a help and um, I was gonna say encouragement to you. I don't know that it was being encouraging, but <laughs> hopefully it was a help to you. Gave you a little bit of insight that you did not have before. And I think I, I think when Biden said, "If they do this, they will rue the day," back in the day when he said that. I think that is exactly right. I think if they go through with this, they will rue the day. I think they will rue the day politically uh, short-term, and they will rue the day politically long-term, because when Biden, uh, who will not be president forever, uh, leaves office, if we have a Republican come into office, what then might they do to the Supreme Court if we set up this precedent of just changing the court at whim so that it will reflect what we want to accomplish if our party is in power. Very, very dangerous road that we are heading down, and this podcast is now twice as long as I was intending it to be, so I'm going to wrap things up now. Thanks so much for listening. This has been The Frittle Show on KBXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas, and on iTunes and SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast places. Find us there. Share with your friends. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, you can leave those on Twitter or Facebook. Find me at The Friddle, and we will see you same time, same place, next week.